24, 13 to 35, and we're reading from the NIV version, on the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about 11 kilometres from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you two discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, <clears throat> excuse me, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up, returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. Thanks be to God. It's an interesting take on the, the road to Emmaus story, isn't it? <laughs> I, uh, I urge you to read the, uh, the Bible and, uh, and see for yourself what it actually says. Uh, there were points of contact there. I wonder how it would have been uh, for us had we been there. Would we have talked about the experience? I'm sure that we would if we had been on that road to Emmaus with a not-literal fork in the road. <laughs> there are some details from Luke's account in this story that uh, are very clear. Uh, on the first Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the grave, these two followers of Jesus were on their way back to their home at Emmaus. And although these men, or these, this couple, it may have been a husband and wife, we don't know, were not identified as two of the twelve disciples, 
they most certainly were followers of Jesus. And they'd been in Jerusalem for the Passover, and they had first-hand knowledge of what had happened, as we saw in that clip. They knew about the arrest, they knew about the trial, they knew about the crucifixion, they knew about the burial, and of course they knew about the empty tomb as well. One of these two men, or one of these two people, was Cleopas. We're unclear about the other person. However, the unnamed disciple, however, other, sorry, however, others believe that the two disciples were perhaps a married couple, as I've said, uh, or women referenced in John's gospel may have come to the cross uh, Jesus by, it says in, in John 19, but standing by the cross of Jesus was the mother, were his mother and uh, mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas. So we have, we have here a definite reference to someone who is directly related to Cleopas. And Cleopas, we know, is referenced as having been here. And according to John, Mary, one of the women present at the cross when Jesus died, was married to a man named Cleopas. The two gospel writers, Luke and John, spell the name slightly differently, don't they? But some scholars believe that Cleopas uh, and Cleopas, uh, sorry, Clopas and Cleopas are the same person. And those who believe this suggest that the same person is actually having a different name used in each of, of those uh, accounts. And that's true in our own lives, isn't it? Uh, we can be known as somebody, um, somebody different, uh, a slightly different take on the name, especially if you come from a, uh, a different uh, nation, different language. Uh, there's a name that you had in the language and there's a name that you're known by commonly. Now, according to the historian uh, Eusebius, who wrote around the 300s, Cleopas was Jesus' uncle, the brother of Joseph, the father of Simeon, who was the leader of the Jerusalem congregation after the fall of the city in AD 70. And as the biblical scholar Earl Ellis notes, if Eusebius is correct, then the story of Emmaus, of these people on the road, was actually a tradition from Jesus' own family history. That's, a, that's quite an interesting take, isn't it? This may actually be a story from Jesus' own family. And other scholars suggest that Cleopas or Clopas are two, di two different people. In other words, the specific identities of Cleopas and the disciple with him aren't really clear. But what is clear is that the resurrected Jesus taught these two the meaning of the scriptures that were fulfilled in him. In verse 32, the passage says that the two disciples, their hearts burnt within them while Jesus was talking to them. But it wasn't until they were inside their own home that their eyes were opened to his identity. Note what Luke says in the first part of verse 30. He says, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and broke it and gave it to them, in Luke 24, 30. And we concentrate, don't we, on the fact that the bread was broken, and we celebrate that 
so many times in communion, as we remember not only the Passover that Jesus had with his disciples before the death, but also this time as well. But perhaps there's something to see in here where it says, at table. You see, the most sacred place inside the home of a Jewish person at that time, especially, was at table. It's a specific phrase. The term for this sacred space, it's called a sacred space. And this term for this secret sacred space is mikdash mayat. And this mikdash mayat literally means a little sanctuary or a mini temple. Now, if you've done any reading about ancient cultures, you'll, you'll know that, that there are little temples, there are little memorials uh, dedicated to God, their God. But this was a time of remembering God who is the living God, who is the God above all gods. So when they gathered together to have a meal, it was also a time of concentrating on the God they served. The saying from the Western world is, a man's home is his castle, and this could be said also in the Near East world as well. And inside the mini temple is the table, the mikdash, a sacred space for the heart-to-heart connection with friends and with God. We've heard before in one of the other sermons uh, a quote from uh, Brendan Manning from the Ragamuffin Gospel. And some of you may have read that book. And he says this, and it really brings it alive, I think. He says, in the Near East, to share a meal with someone is a guarantee of peace. Wouldn't it be nice these days in the East if people would just sit down and have a meal and we might have some more peace? He says it's a guarantee of peace, of trust, of fraternity, of forgiveness. The shared table symbolizes a shared life. And Manning says this, an Orthodox Jew saying, I would like to have dinner with you, implies I would like to enter a friendship with you. And even today in modern society, You know, someone will sit down at a table and have a meal. And it still has a sense of that meaning, doesn't it? That we're not just sitting down and having food. But if we invite someone to our home and we sit down together for a meal, there is the inference that we want to build a relationship. We want to have friendship. Manning says, it means, come to my mikdash mayat my meal, to the miniature sanctuary in my dining room table where we will celebrate a most sacred and beautiful experience that life affords, friendship. Think about it. Isn't that what Zacchaeus heard when Jesus called him down from the sycamore tree as recorded in Luke 19? And that is why Jesus' practice of table fellowship caused him so much trouble because he was calling these people together over a meal. And some people were not happy that he was doing that because he wasn't just having a meal with someone. It inferred that he wanted friendship. 
And some of the people that he wanted friendship with by doing that was upsetting those who were very legalistic, who were very religious, who were just into the form of religion rather than the actual connection with God. In John 12, 2-3, we read that it was at table where Lazarus' sister Mary poured her bottle of expensive perfume over Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. At table was where Mary could serve Jesus and bless him with all she had to give. There was a sacredness about it. And in John 12, Mary took the servant's posture. And in John 13, we see our Saviour Jesus taking the servant posture as well. And armed with a towel and a wash basin, he served his disciples as they reclined at table. In John 13 it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid, out the outer, laid aside the outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus served his disciples at two meals after Mary's anointing him with perfume. At the Passover meal, when he washed the feet of the twelve, and then again at the home of the two disciples that he met, as we know, at Emmaus. In their home, we see Jesus assuming the role of a host, he was both servant and he was host to the meal. Their eyes were opened, we're told. He was with them at the table. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. This, when you think about it, is the first post-resurrection meal that Jesus had sitting down with his disciples. And it's been suggested that it parallels uh, something much earlier in the history of the Jewish people and our own history as well. It actually has a reference, a, a kind of a, a connection with the meal that Adam and Eve had. See, they were sitting down. They were having a meal. It wasn't that it was done according to the rules, uh, but, but they, were, they were sitting down together and having a meal. But here we see a reversal of what went before. And just as they had a meal and condemnation followed that, Death came by one man. So in this case, life has come by one man, hasn't it? Not only by Jesus' death and his resurrection, but he's sitting down with his disciples and the meal becomes something which is part of the resurrection life. The resurrection life of Jesus, but also the hope of glory, 
that goes from that. Just as Adam and Eve had, if you like to call it a snack, (laughs) but a meal, uh, something to eat, and their eyes were opened suddenly to what was wrong and what was evil, here they have a meal with Jesus, and their eyes are opened to what is good, to who he is. N.T. Wright describes the significance of the way of the, of the way Luke uh, parallels these two meals. He says this: the tale was told over and over as the beginning of the woes that had come upon the human race. No doubt, death itself was traced to that moment of rebellion. The whole creation was subject to decay, futility and sorrow. And now Luke, echoing that story, describes the first meal of the new creation with the couple at Emmaus. Probably Cleopas and Mary, husband and wife, discover that the long curse has been broken. Death itself has been defeated. God's new creation, brimming with life and joy. And new possibility has burst upon the world. Jesus himself, risen from the dead, is beginning, is in the beginning and the sign of the new world. The meal at Emmaus was the first time, as I said, that humans could celebrate the freedom from the curse that resulted from the meal of forbidden fruit. The cross of Christ was the payment for our debt. The cross led to the empty tomb and the resurrection on the first Sunday, a new awakening of a new creation, no longer under the power of the original curse. Eyes were opened to new possibilities, How wonderful that must have been. The Passover lamb had been sacrificed once and for all. Jesus said, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and these things, uh, suffer these things and enter into his glory? Luke 24 26. And the Greek word for the phrase, was it not necessary? can also be translated, did you not know? Once again, there's a reflection from past scripture. You see, do you remember Jesus when he was young, when he was 12, when the family had gone off and and left him, and then they searched among themselves and found that he wasn't with them. They went back to the temple, and there they found him, the 12-year-old Jesus responding to their anxiety and their sorrow, their fears even, and now they're relieved. But Jesus said the same phrase, did you not know? Once again, did you not know? And as the disciples were in their fear and anxiety and not knowing what to do, where to go, what now? Have you you not heard about the death and and, and, and everything that happened. But now there's hope. 
Now there's hope. Did you not know? Was it not necessary? And in another sense, the meal that he had with them also points to another meal. And that is the wedding feast that we read about in Revelation. Certainly, I mean, the Revelation meal, the meal mentioned in Revelations is just an enormous event. But nevertheless, consider the fact that it is sitting down at a meal. And what then? This is a time also when our eyes will be opened. Our eyes will be opened. And it says in 1 John 3, 2, we shall see him as he is. How wonderful is that? So as we look at these disciples, having a meal with Jesus, fellowshipping with him, and he breaks the bread and he talks to them about who he, he, he is, what's, what scripture means. And it says their eyes were opened. And likewise, we have the possibility of eyes being opened, don't we? Once again, N.T. Wright says this, the whole gospel story is framed between these two human scenes. Luke invites us to accompany him on a journey of faith. Faith that will take us through anxiety and sorrow to meet Jesus who has accomplished his father's work. And he longs to share the secret of it and the gift of his own presence with us, his followers. Luke has therefore described for us, as he said he would, a new exodus that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus had led God's people out of slavery and he now invites them to accompany him on a new journey. A new journey. The road to Emmaus, in a sense, is not the end, but it's the beginning. And how wonderful that it's with the person of Jesus present. How wonderful that it is over a meal of fellowship, Mikdash Mayat, a sacred space. Hearing Jesus' voice in the scriptures, knowing him in the breaking of bread is the way, welcoming us to God's new world. We know that the people of God gathered in the New Testament regularly. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, the koinonia, and the breaking of bread and prayers in Acts 2, 42. For the early church, breaking bread together, sharing meals together, and all that went with it was a significant part of being a follower of Jesus. And the place where they broke the bread together was at table. So may we gather together as a church family when we, when we gather together for meals. May we remember who Jesus is and what it means to be one of his disciples. May we break bread, open the scriptures and pray Asking Jesus to continue to open our eyes as well. 
to an understanding of who he is and who he wants us to be. And in Ephesians 1, 18 to 22, it says this, and I'll conclude with this. It says in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ, when the Father raised Christ from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So we've celebrated this time of Easter, but let's not let go of what God has given us in terms of fellowship, in terms of his presence, in terms of his desire for you to know him more. And remember that that's his project. He, he desires that for you. And he will guide you in it. And especially remember it at the times that we come and pause for communion. We are part of the fellowship, the church of which he is the head. And he is leading us on a journey, not one that ends with a fork in the road, but one that goes far beyond that. Have confidence in him. Amen? Amen.